Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good, um, had a good weekend, rather, I should say, and that all of you have had a good start to your um, week so far. I know I had a good weekend. It went by quick, but they always seem to do that. But it was um, not boring, to say the least. Um, I had plenty of due to, I had plenty of things to do uh, that kept me occupied, which is always a good thing. And for those of you who are Pittsburgh Steelers fans like I am, including my wife, um, it was a big uh, day yesterday uh, for the Steeler Nation, uh, not only to have beaten their arch rivals, the Ravens, uh, the Baltimore Ravens, twice in the regular season, but to get that final uh, playoff spot in the AFC. So for those of you who are uh, loyal Steeler fans waving the uh, terrible towel, black and gold, we all know that Big Ben's got one more game left, and... Um, what a stellar career, 18 years with one team, just very unheard of in this day and age with um, free agency like it is. Uh, loyalties um, are very hard to come by when it uh, comes to professional sports nowadays where a player stays with one uh, team uh, for the duration of his career. So um, for those of you uh, Steeler fans out there, um, even if we don't win next Sunday against the Chiefs, at least we know that Big Ben um, had a remarkable career. But anyways, I think it's uh, probably more important to uh, be focusing on what we've been uh, talking about for the last uh, seven episodes uh, going into the, uh, tonight's uh, eighth uh, segment of Harlow Giles Unger's Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. This uh, segment is going to be the uh, beginning of what I believe will be a two-part uh, segment on uh, Thomas Paine's uh, time in France. And of course, I will tell you all this right now, that Thomas Paine's time in France was one that was marked by highs and lows, and it was also marked by turmoil. Would anybody happen to know what I mean by turmoil in France? Well, maybe that should be our first lead-off question to better understand what the turmoil itself was all about. So, our first lead-off question is going to be the following. Did France, prior to and after the American Revolutionary War's end, face turmoil on its own home soil? The answer is yes. Uh, France, as a nation, had been facing crises from an assortment of fronts, most notably political, economic, and social. Anytime a nation faces unrest, it's usually those three elements, the political, economic, and social. If not all three, at least one or two, but usually those three are the uh, core essential elements of unrest. However, uh, it, we should uh, point out that um, after the American Revolutionary War ended, most notably with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, what fellow Virginian went on to serve as America's ambassador to France from 1784 to 1789? I'll give you three choices. Was it choice A, Thomas Jefferson, choice B, James Madison, or choice C, James Monroe? Does anybody want to take a guess at which one of those three Virginians was the ambassador to France from 1784 to 1789? The answer is choice A, Thomas Jefferson. Now, being ambassador of France has got a lot of perks and privileges for Thomas Jefferson. However, there is a disadvantage. 
the disadvantage is the following. The majority of France's people are nowhere near the status rank of nobility, landed gentry, and clergy. Those three groups, being the nobility, the landed gentry, and the clergy, represent a small percentage of France's elite population. In other words, if you're in the nobility and the landed gentry and being in the clergy, what, are you, what, what would you all have title to? Land. Not just land, but ownership of a swath of land. And we're not just talking 50 acres, folks. We're talking about over 500 acres of land. I mean, so much land so to where you're bound to have estates. Not just an estate, but grand estates. So yes, um, the nobility, the landed gentry, and the clergy are going to be the people whom Jefferson will probably be associating himself with, most notably, though, nobility and landed gentry. So is it fair to say that Thomas Jefferson has really had any time to spend with the people in the opposite ranks of France's society? Probably not. So Jefferson is residing in fine estates, and, and this includes being surrounded by members of the French nobility, people whom he can relate to, people whom have as much to offer to the same degree that Jefferson himself does. And it's not just the money piece, it's the knowledge that Jefferson retains on an assortment of subjects, from agriculture, from, um, from views on religion, um, to even scientific um, affairs like astronomy, uh, for example. Uh, just, just to name a few examples that Jefferson himself will have to offer people of his, of his um, status equivalent, but not just based upon the status equivalent alone, it's just the, the broad uh, knowledge that people of the nobility and gentry statuses have that make them um, so valuable. But, of course, to the people in the lowest ranks of France's society, they're not going to share the same views. As a matter of fact, the people well below the status of gentry and nobility pretty much resent uh, the upper-tier levels of French society. So, who is uh, France's king? That's King Louis XVI. Well, Louis XVI knows that there's turmoil. And he knows that probably the only way he could stay on the throne is by engaging in some form of, um, what do you call it, some form of social reform, <laughs> form reform. <laughs> but there, he knows that there has to be some reform to take place in order to avoid um, a revolution to where Louis XVI knows that he could run the risk of being overthrown by uh, the greater masses of the French, of France, Rather, I should say, the greater masses of uh, French society or the French population as a whole. So Louis XVI calls on the country's most prominent leaders to enact social and economic reforms, but yet allow the nobility peoples or the nobility ranks to remain exempt upon paying taxes. So who's going to get stuck footing the bill to uh, support the uh, monarchy of France? the lower uh, ranks of society. They're the ones stuck paying the bill to ensure that this, um, in their eyes, irrelevant 
system of governing remains afloat when they know that it has no business even being in existence. Come June of 1789, the French National Assembly, which was comprised of men in ranks ranging from the nobility, the landed gentry, to the upper middle class, turned to a fellow revolutionary war hero, a fellow Frenchman by the name of Marquis de Lafayette. I don't think we've... It's fair to say that all of us know who that man is, right? I would say so. George Washington often referred to him as like another son. Well, Mar the Marquis de Lafayette by 1789 is just um, in his early 30s, but the way he's uh, doing business, you would think that he was somewhere close to uh, being in his 50s. I mean, for being a young young 30-some-year-old um, man, he is a veteran, though, um, for his time. But the Marquis de Lafayette will be the one whom will go about drawing up a document that resembles America's Declaration of Independence as well as Constitution. And hard to believe that um, just two months earlier, in April of 1789, the United States of America just got its first elected um, commander-in-chief in office, a.k.a. George Washington, President of the United States. And here, two months later, in France, in June of 1789, Marquis de Lafayette is trying to come up with, with a constitutional uh, governing document that bears um, the same features as the United States' Constitution and its predecessor, the Declaration of Independence. This new governing document did provide measures like abolishing social classes to ensuring that people from all ranks of society were guaranteed the right to a fair trial. It may not be the grandest of documents, but then again, the United States Constitution wasn't probably considered the grandest of documents. But as Benjamin Franklin said, it was the best we could come up with. Some people were known to ask Benjamin Franklin, what, did you, what kind of government are we going to have? And he said, a republic. It was his version of saying a democracy. The bigger question is, can you keep it? Well, 235, almost 235 years later, that government is still in existence in the United States through the best of times and through the uh, worst of times, most notably what happened last year at the Capitol. So we still, I mean, we're very thankful here in the United States that we still have a, a government that's been in existence for just over 230 years. The bigger question is, can we still keep that government in play, given with all the, un, given with all the uncertainty facing not just our, our great nation, but even around the world? Because democracies around the world today are not immune from all of the uh, extremism that is um, surfacing at a greater rate than, say, 30-some years beforehand. The establishment of the new governing document, however, did not include the voices of people from France's lower-tier classes, whom, in the end, helped go about leading uprises in, uprisings in and outside of Paris. So if, if people get... If people feel as though they're being left out, they are going to take matters into their own hands, and it's not always for the better. Did Thomas Paine arrive to France in 1789 on the eve of revolution? Yes, he had. He had, in fact. He had been in England, though, upon arriving into France. 
What was he doing in England, folks? He went back to his homeland of Tetford, England, 70 miles north of London, to visit his father, who was still alive. Payne um, empathized with mob crowds everywhere throughout Paris, to where he joined along with these um, groups by voicing his own opposition against monarchy rule. However, by the time Thomas uh, Paine arrived to France, Thomas Jefferson was no longer there. Where did Thomas Jefferson go? He went back to America. And what was he called to do when he came back to America? He received the letter before leaving France, but he received the, the letter was uh, sent to him from George Washington. George Washington asked Thomas Jefferson to be Secretary of State. So Thomas Jefferson gladly accepts the offer and goes back to America to fulfill another role of public service. Even as mass violence had broken out on Paris's streets, Marquis de Lafayette commanded a National Guard unit that quashed riotous activities. When you quash something, you repel it. You dismantle it from getting worse. So Lafayette's National Guard unit goes about quashing riotous activities, whereas the National Assembly was able to silence mob crowds by nationalizing. And pay attention very carefully here, folks. Nationalizing in this case is the transferring of properties. The, the National Assembly was able to nationalize or transfer properties of king and church from private to state ownership status, along with eliminating the church's access to government power. So the National Assembly, folks, has taken a huge step in, in doing their version of separating church and state. So, in other words, the church will no longer be able to tell the state how to govern. In other words, the church will only be able to be focused on its affairs. The government should not be telling the church how to preach to the mass um, crowds or to the congregation itself. Let's keep in mind, folks, that the majority of France's population is of uh, the Catholic faith. Uh, I, it's probably fair to say that whatever sect of Protestantism exists in France, it is in a very, very small number, uh, maybe even less than 5% at best. But the majority of France's population at this time is of the uh, Catholic faith. Jefferson's absence from France did um, leave a void for Thomas Paine. However, he still had relationships. He still had a relationship with Lafayette, but it was limited due to Lafayette's new role of being the uh, French National Guard's uh, commander. Payne tried to friend um, Governor Morris, whom um, whom was a fellow American um, from Pennsylvania, but Governor Morris uh, <laughs> disliked Payne. Payne even went as far as reaching out to longtime British friend Edmund Burke. And in the letter that Payne wrote to Burke, he included in it uh, mentioning about France's uh, government reform successes. However, um, 
this is going to be short-lived. How so? Well, here's the next question. Did British statesman Edmund Burke support Thomas Paine's views behind French governmental reform? No. Edmund Burke is the exact opposite of Thomas Paine on a lot of uh, political fronts. Prior to this letter, maybe it's fair to say that Burke and Paine did agree on certain things, but yet the differences outweighed their, um, outweighed their sharing views on whatever it was they agreed to. Uh, Edmund Burke believed that France had already implemented a system of government that was properly functioning prior to mob, ri prior to mob riots demanding reform. You know, it's one thing to advocate reform and enact reform, but in the eyes of Edmund Burke, new reforms alone do not always mean that everybody will, will comply. For Edmund Burke, he feared that the new reforms would lead to anarchy, where the reforms themselves could only exist short term. Mass crowds, or we should say the mob groups, in Edmund Burke's eyes, would never be satisfied with any reform measure because if the reforms themselves did not include sponsorships from their own ranks, that is, the ranks from the lower tier uh, groups of society, then the reforms themselves did not have any significant relevance, or in other words, the legislation itself. The mob crowds in Burke's eyes we're always looking for fault with everyone else whom appeared to be better in terms of having success. You know, it's one thing to be left out, but if you feel left out, can't you do something about it or at least try to do something about it? Sure. But at the same time, if people in the lower ranks of society do not have the same level of education as those from the upper tier status ranks, then it does become harder for those individuals to be able to uh, find a voice in society. And not just find a voice, but find people who will uh, join them from a different uh, branch and say, hey, I can empathize with you. I'd like to help you. So for some people, yes, we could say that no matter what someone else from above does, they'll never be satisfied. But there again, if they don't have the same access to what others above them have, then it will be hard for them to uh, mobilize and relate in the same manner. Maybe it's fair to say that what was going on in France in 1789 does pertain to a fair number of uh, social issues facing America and elsewhere around the world in today's modern, unstable world. Let's go even further, folks, well before 1789. What legislation did Parliament pass back in 1661 that Thomas Paine himself deeply opposed and it was still in existence even going into the late 18th century? Well, for one, we know that uh, in 1661 that none of our forefathers are alive. We have to wait another 45 years come 1706 until the first of our forefathers is born, being Mr. Benjamin Franklin. But in 1661, Parliament passed what was called the Test Act. Why is the Test Act so unique, folks? This law prohibited all Church of England dissenters from holding 
any governmental office, as well as prohibiting all Church of England dissenters from serving in the army and the navy, including forbidding them from going to college, especially at such prominent universities like Oxford and Cambridge, these dissenters could not even earn a college degree at these schools. And who is supporting the Test Act? Payne's arch-nemesis Edmund Burke, who was a staunch supporter of the legislation, blocked multiple attempts to repeal the law. Folks, did the Test Act remain on Parliament's books even after Thomas Paine died? Yes. Does anybody want to take a guess at how much longer this legislation stayed on the books until Parliament finally repealed the law altogether? 1828, folks. This law was on the books for 167 years. And to think that this law was repealed two years after Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died. Both men died on July 4th of 1826. And believe it or not, folks, this law, when this law was still repeat, when this law got repealed, only one signer of the Declaration of Independence was still alive, and that was Mr. Charles Carroll of Maryland, who would die in 1832 at the age of 95. And the last of the 56 signers was the only Roman Catholic signer to sign the Declaration of Independence. What does that tell you right there, folks? That tells us a lot. It also tells us that, while yes, the United States' government just being, well, the Declaration of Independence just being over 50 years, just over 50 years old by 1828 and um, America's birthday being just over 50 years old, it seemed like maybe America had come a long ways further than her own, um, further than the mother country being England. Religious um, diversity or religious uh, toleration has been a work of art that is still a work of art even in today's world. But it did blow me away to think that there was a law that had been on the books for 167 some years until it finally had been repealed. You know, it's one thing to be of Protestant faith, but just because you were a Methodist or a Quaker in England, that didn't mean you were given the same rights as those who adhered to the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. To think that people of Protestant faith at one time, non-Anglican uh, faith, could not hold office. Maybe it's fair to say that members of Parliament were worried that if we allowed um, dissenters to hold a governmental office, that they would be the ones encouraging uprisings most notably to overthrow the monarch in England. Anything's possible. Loyalties, folks, are a serious thing. Even in the post-American Revolutionary War era, they still seem to be very serious. Did Thomas Paine publish a pamphlet defending the French Revolution? Yes. The pamphlet Paine wrote was Rights of Man in 1791, which assailed all elements behind the institution of the French monarchy. The French monarchy, per Thomas Paine, had deprived people, most notably of the lower-tier classes, 
the basic rights behind having a say in their government. This included voicing opinions or views as to how government, or I should say the institution of government, ought to be framed, including methods in choosing elected leaders. So in other words, people of the lower tier classes were not given um, a right to say what to say what the new government uh, system ought to include. I, I believe it's fair to say that those of the upper ranks of society were the ones that said that everyone ought to have the right to a fair trial. But at the same time, does that include people of lower ranks of French society? We don't know, because when you say everyone has the right to a fair trial, that to me, that would mean everyone, regardless of class status. But depending on who's in control, that could be interpreted differently. Paine's rights of man received harsh criticism against Britain's upper-tier peoples being the nobility and the landed gentry, which to me is an automatic given. This group of people believed that power itself must be derived in the hands of those labeled wealthy and well-educated. Why so? For the wealthy or in this case the nobility and the landed gentry, they believed that they were the ones that had, they, were, they believed that they were the ones that possessed the knowledge to make all formal decisions based upon what they had access to, whereas those below didn't. So if you were very knowledgeable about a particular subject or two and can make decisions for people below you, then why surrender your knowledge to someone else below you who does not come anywhere close to possessing what you have? So if you are well-educated in, um, in multiple affairs, then yes, you ought to be the one representing people below you because if you don't have the knowledge, then yes, hopefully somebody else will, but if nobody has knowledge in a certain um in a certain topic, or on a certain topic rather, then how is it going to be addressed to people below who might not know what others above have? So is it fair to say that everybody who's wealthy and well-educated, is it fair to say that they are all snooty? No. Some could be, but those who are well-educated, it's fair to say, have worked like Turks to ensure that what they know can be um, passed down to someone below them uh, from the same um, ranks so that uh, when that person's time um, comes, the next person in their um, status will be able to uh, pass along the same knowledge to those from the lower tiers of society who they hope will benefit from the legislation that Parliament enacts. But then again, we should keep in mind that the legislation Parliament usually has passed during that time, and even with the House of Burgesses from my time in Williamsburg, the legislation is only impacting the legislators and maybe about 10% of society, that 10% being the nobility, the gentry, people who have money. They are the ones who are benefiting from the legislation. The other 90%, they're just uh, go being forced to go along with the flow against their own will. British courts, including members of Parliament, viewed Paine's rights of man as treasonous because it called for an all-out removal of the, of the entire monarchy system, as well as hereditary succession. For Thomas Paine, 
monarchy represented interests benefiting a select inner circle where only a few people would reap the rewards while leaving so many behind. For Thomas Paine, the only way that government can function in terms of full inclusion of all society is where if it's government by means of elections and representation, this would ensure that all voices got heard without anyone being left behind. For Thomas Paine, government must involve mass participation. It cannot be confined to just a select few. In other words, Thomas Paine is not, uh, does not support aristocracy. He does not uh, support oligarchy. He doesn't support any kind of government where the power is placed in the hands of a few. Did prominent men in America approve of Paine's newest work, Rights of Man? Yes, most notably Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Did George Washington approve? Yes. Paine did send uh, Washington multiple copies of his new book, and Washington did appreciate what Paine had done. However, we have to keep in mind about George Washington, we have to keep a lot of things in mind about Washington that are, that are relevant. Washington has his own way of, of governing, but Washington is also a man of law and order. After all, Washington is the commander of the continent, was the commander of the Continental Army. Washington knows that in order for a government to function, there has to be a system of checks and balances. Our forefathers agreed to that in the Constitution when they came up with the document that there had to be a system of checks and balances where one branch of government could not overpower the other. At the same time, though, Washington knows that there are people who are interested in wanting to work in the government. Even Thomas Paine himself would like to serve in Washington's cabinet. Washington did him some great favors, and Paine never forgot. However, uh, George Washington cannot fulfill this promise right now. And why is that, folks? Because Washington is in the middle of trying to uh, work out differences between America and England. He knows that he just fought a war not, long, not too long back to keep uh, kings out of the country. But at the same time, Washington knows that one day from now, there will be better relations between America and England. It's not going to happen overnight, but he's trying to do everything he can to modify the current uh, situation to where things, if they're not 100% better, they could be somewhat close to 50%. So for Washington, his focus right now is trying to resolve existing differences uh, between America and England. Let's forward uh, two years later. We go to 1791. What happened on June 21st of 1791? Well, um, Marquis de Lafayette entered uh, Thomas Paine's home with, an ur with urgent news. Okay, folks, you know, we don't have telephones back then. We don't have um, breaking news app alerts. But what, Tom, but what Marquis de Lafayette is going to advise Thomas Paine might as well be the equivalent of a modern-day breaking news alert. He goes to Thomas Paine's home with urgent news informing Paine that King Louis XVI, along with his own family, have, had fled France for personal safety. Louis XVI abdicated 
his throne in fear of mob crowds breaking and entering into his own palace, where not just breaking into the home in terms of vandalizing it, but, but out of fear that, that the mob crowds could take the entire family hostage. Where do you think Louis XVI and his family are going to go? Well, think about it, folks. There is a side of France that is surrounded by water. So going by water is not going to probably be the safest bet. They're going to go east. So by going east, the family is, uh, is uh, making its way into Austrian territory. Austrian territory is in the hands of Queen, of Queen Marie Antoinette's family. After all, that's uh, Louis XVI's wife. Queen Marie Antoinette. So it would be fair to go somewhere where you have extended family who has um, who has land, not just land, but has a place where you could go in um, to flee for exile. I think the bigger question is: it's one thing for this for Louis the Sixteenth and his family to go eastward. The bigger question is: are they going to make it there safely? We'll have to find out here shortly. But uh, Lafayette himself did help play a role in uh, seeing the king's family leave France. But even Lafayette alone was not immune to criticism from political opponents whom discovered his actions. And they viewed his actions as traitorous, or what we might think of as being treasonous. It's fair to say now that his political opponents believe that he has been aiding and abetting a fugitive, a fugitive being the king whom the mob crowds despise. George Jacques Danton, a radical political leader and a lawyer whom opposed monarchy rule, goes about distributing leaflets, or what we might think of as signs, messages, accusing Lafayette of taking part in the king's escape. All right, here's the big question here. Did King Louis XVI's family succeed in escaping France altogether? Yes and no. Okay, how does the yes part come into play? Well, King Louis XVI's brother made it over. But unfortunately, the no part has to do with Louis XVI and his family, being that of his wife, Marie Antoinette, and their three children. They did not make it fully over. They were caught by the French National Guard in Marquis de Lafayette, and they were escorted back to Paris where the mob crowds demanded full justice. Maybe Lafayette is trying to restore his image and say that, okay, you know, George Jacques Danton, he may not have liked what I've done, but I'm going to modify things by, you know, searching... Um, for Louis the Sixteenth and uh, bringing him back, and hopefully this will ease the, the existing tensions. On the same day, Louis the Sixteenth and the family were brought back to Paris. Thomas Paine. He is accompanied by two friends, and they are walking through the Tuileries Gardens. Look, folks, I'm not 100% fluent in French, but I'm pronouncing um, whatever I can in French as fluent as I can. But hey. At least I'm trying, and I guess that's better than, than the opposite. <laughs> but Thomas Paine and his two friends are walking peacefully through the Tuileries gardens, only to get encountered by a small mob crowd. Paine has forgotten something, folks. What, what could he be forgetting that would upset or 
force him to get confronted by a small mob crowd. Payne forgot to wear a red Phrygian cap and cockade. Why is that so important? Because the red Phrygian cap and cockade itself represented supporting the revolutionary movement that's currently at stake. So, it's bad enough that Thomas Paine forgot to wear this, Fred, this red Phrygian cap that included a cockade on it, but the mob crowd that was there accused Paine of being an aristocrat. And Paine is not fluent in French, folks. This, this makes things even worse, and because he's not fluent in French, he's unable to defend himself. He gets seized immediately by the angry mob crowd who decides who decides upon themselves to take him to the closest lamppost for hanging purposes, all in the name of having forgotten to wear a cap and a cockade that represented his proper formal ties to the revolutionary movement. To me, this is a terrible injustice on the part of angry crowds who don't have any concept of what boundaries represent. Couldn't someone have said to him, Thomas, aren't you forgetting something? Oh, you're right. My cap. How could I have forgotten? This mob crowd, folks, they're so caught up in the moment that they forget that, heaven forbid, if one of their own forgot to do something, they turn on that, that individual right away. But is it fair to say that people who've been oppressed for so long have struggled to channel their own emotions into play where where if something petty to us occurs that to them it's the exact opposite i'm not trying to get into anything political but let's just keep in mind this let's pretend folks as though we are in 1789 and into 1791 we've got to put ourselves in this uh, delicate situation that's uh, happening in france and so much is changing before our eyes that we don't know what's going to happen the day after tomorrow. You know, it's one thing for this mob crowd to want government reform. The bigger question is, is, okay, if they get government, new government reform, are they going to be satisfied with what's in place? They're not satisfied with the new reforms that have taken place, but it is fair to say that there's always going to be a sector of society that will never be satisfied with anything that gets put into play that's new that replaces what was not um, working beforehand. Were Thomas Paine's friends who were with him at the time of this um, angry um, incident, were these friends of Paine's fluent in French? Yes. And because they spoke French, the mob crowd realized the mistake that was made to where these mass where this mass group of people apologized profusely for their conduct so if it hadn't been for Payne's friends folks at this particular moment Payne probably would have gotten the axe so thank heavens Payne has friends right nearby next to him who can speak the language whereas Payne opposed monarch rule altogether Marquis de Lafayette supported it but he supported it under what is called constitutional rule, which means that the monarch is the one who reigns as chief executive. 
but is not elected directly by the subjects below, a.k.a. the people. These political differences with regards to monarch rule led Thomas Paine and Marquis de Lafayette to have a rift in their overall friendship. Hopefully it can get resolved, though, over time, but let's just keep in mind, folks, that even many of our forefathers did have political rifts. The most famous one, in my opinion, was Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And if we, you know, if, if we all remember their differences, that's something onto itself, to say the least. By July of 1791, who controls the French National Assembly? The Jacobins. This group of people have fiercely opposed French monarchy for as long as they can recall. Who was the um, leader behind um, the Jacobin movement? His name is, um, it's a long name, but I'm, but I'm going to condense it here, folks. His name is Maximilien Francois Robespierre, or Robespierre. This individual, given that he was the architect or the figure behind the Jacobin movement, the Jacobins were, um, yes, we know that they fiercely opposed the French monarchy, but they sought to eliminate all power from the hands of aristocrats, nobility, to landed gentry, and place the power in the hands of regular everyday people. Well, it's one thing to want to place the power in the hands of everyday people, but even everyday people sometimes need guidance from those above. And it never hurts to maybe seek guidance from above from those who have land, those who might have a little bit more. So is it fair to say that maybe the Jacobins, if they're not careful, that they have the potential to burn bridges? Yes. But at this point in time, do you think the Jacobins really care about that? As much as I hate to say this, folks, I don't think they do. Well, you know, um, for uh, Maximilian Francois, for Maximilian Francois Robespierre, along with other Jacobin leaders, they were in fact inspired by the works of Thomas Paine, including other uh, prominent Americans like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, to where they wanted to where they wanted just a handful, I mean, some of the many American men whom did such noble works uh, during the course of the American Revolutionary War era, they wanted these men to become honorary French citizens. Well, Thomas Paine took up their offer in receiving an honorary French citizenship um, status, which also included his becoming elected to the National Assembly. This is all very fitting, to say the least, but at the same time, Marquis de Lafayette is leading a National Guard in quashing outsiders whom were looking to disrupt the current state of affairs in France. Is it fair to say, folks, that Lafayette is a fan of the Jacobins? No. He does not like the Jacobins because he knows that, okay, yes, the Jacobins have been oppressed for some time, but what he fears more than anything is that the Jacobins, basically he knows that the Jacobins are that group of people 
who, yes, wanted reforms and got some reforms, but they are never going to be 100% satisfied with anything else that they view as being a um, as being threatening to their to how they would want to um, govern. So, in other words, the Jake for the for Marquis de Lafayette, the Jacobins are pretty much the the group that would that would say the following: it's our way or the doorway, or it's our way or the highway. In other words, it's all about us. You know, we don't care about what the people from above have to say because they were the ones who had been oppressing us for so long. Why should we listen to them anymore? It's all about us and what we want. Isn't that the way it is with politics in today's modern world? People from all ranks of society wanting something, and when they can't find something, they go to extremes to gripe about it, and yet they can't find a way to compromise where where both um, the high end of society and the the lower end can come together to get some form some proper formal solution where everybody walks away with something even if it's not the grandest of solutions. Well, that's the way it was, folks. Even in 1789 in France and in the early 1790s, and Thomas Paine is witnessing all this. So. These outsiders, folks, are not just so much the Jacobins or people who are following in the shoes of the Jacobins. We're talking about uh, troops, Prussians, Hessians, and Austrian troops. Why are they involved all of a sudden, folks? Because they have royal relatives who are in prison, who whom are imprisoned in France. So now for Marquis de Lafayette, he's got a bigger problem. Because with, for, with troops coming in from, um, from uh, what we now know as modern-day Austria, modern-day Germany, and in Prussia, Lafayette himself can't even maintain order, dis, order and discipline from within his own army, as his own soldiers are refusing to fire on and arrest Jacobin leaders. Is it fair to say that even troops from within... Are, are empathizing with the Jacobins. Yes. Lafayette now all of a sudden gets arrested and imprisoned. He gets arrested and imprisoned and is going to uh, be imprisoned in Olmutz, Moravia, which is now present-day Czech Republic. That's a long ways from France to be imprisoned. The bigger question is, will Marquis de Lafayette be able to uh, be rescued? Well, we're near the end of uh, this uh, segment, but we have some other very, very relevant information we've got to get through. Prior to late 1792, had Thomas Paine been treated well by most of French society? Yes. And a lot of that can be, con can be taken into consideration in regards to how well his literary works, um, the achievement of his literary works, most notably the rights of man. The rights of man um, sold well in England, I mean, sold well in France, but it also sold phenomenally well in England. Do you want to know how many copies of rights of man were, got sold in England, folks? The answer was between one, I'll give you a number range, between one and two million. The answer is one and a half, 1,500,000 copies. And that um, 
consider that the population in England by late 1792 is 8 million. So that means that um, a good majority of the population in England, for being at around 8 million, is, has had access to read Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Well, the British government, they don't like Thomas Paine's book, Rights of Man. They requested that, that Paine be placed on trial in absentia. What does absentia mean? It's another, it's, it's another term for being absent. You know, you're not present. We're going to try you, but you just won't be present. They are trying Paine in absentia on the grounds that his writings represented a direct threat to the crown and government, or I should say parliament. His writings had called on overthrowing the monarchy altogether. Well, don't you think that Thomas Paine uh, would feel safe in France? I thought so, but I was shocked. The Jacobins, of all people, have turned against their former friend. Why so, folks? Because Thomas Paine, in the early years, and most notably when um, America had declared when colonial America had declared its uh, separation from England, colonial America, um, a year after it had declared its separation from um, England, they were looking for an ally. And that um, in our defeating, in our, our victory at Saratoga in 1777 helped set the stage for getting France to become our official ally in the quest in, to defeat the British in the Revolutionary War. Thomas Paine was an ardent supporter of King Louis XVI's uh, decision to, um, to go forward and getting France on board and joining the American cause. And it wasn't just so much to join the cause, but to provide vast supplies, ammunition, muskets, cannon, the whole nine yards, you know, we saw, you know, remember we learned from a previous podcast, uh, a group of fishermen spotted in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, well before Saratoga, um, one of three, the first of three boats that came into um, Portsmouth that were uh, French vessels that supplied vast quantities of military provisions needed to fight the war against the um, most powerful nation in the world. So Thomas Paine, hello there uh, to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Um, just want to let you know that um, I'm sorry if I may have gotten cut off um, just a few minutes ago, but um, the good news is that I am back on the air and I'm going to be able to uh, finish uh, this uh, podcast segment. So for, for those of you who were listening a few minutes ago, we... Um, we're learning about what was taking place in uh, late 1792. So I'm going to start back from the get-go so that we're all on the same page and not only just being on the same page, but when we end this uh, segment, we will understand why uh, this um, last piece of this uh, episode is so uh, relevant. So we're going to start off again with the following. Prior to late 1792, had Thomas Paine been treated well by most of French society? Uh, the answer is yes. Considering just how well his literary works, most notably The Rights of Man, 
had sold overall in general in terms of the overall number of copies that had been distributed. I'm not exactly sure what the number was in France, but I do know that in England there were uh, well over a million copies sold. But does anybody want to take a guess at exactly just how many copies were sold in England, given that it exceeded one million? I'll give you a number uh, range. The answer, the number range is between one and a half million to two and a half million. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the exact number would be? The answer is one and a half million, considering there is a population of eight million alone in England at the time. Well, you know, yes, I mean, Thomas Paine has been treated well by most of French society. I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, they have embraced him. I mean, why would, why would we think by now that the opposite would happen? I mean, it would be foolish to think that the inevitable could happen. But, you know, sometimes things happen when we don't expect them to, and they don't always happen where pleasant outcomes for long-term purposes are going to be, um, are going to be uh, for the better. Well, I hate to tell you all this, but come December 18, 1792, the British government requested that Thomas Paine be placed on trial in absentia. And what does absentia mean? It means that one is not present. In other words, a trial will go on to, um, to determine uh, whether or not a person is innocent or guilty based upon the charges brought against them. But this trial is based upon um, what the British government finds as finds uh, to be um, totally um, irrelevant or, or hearsay. The British government does not like any of Thomas Paine's works, and this can be dated back to uh, the Revolutionary War era and in the post-Revolutionary War world as well. Thomas Paine, in their eyes, might as well just no longer exist as a British citizen. So the British government has pretty much... Um, demanding that Thomas Paine be found guilty and that his writings represented a direct threat to the crown and the government, or I should say parliament, because the writings called for, an overthrow, called for overthrowing the monarchy altogether. Well, you know, Thomas Paine empathized with the Jacobins. Do you think the Jacobins are, gonna, um, st are still going to come to Thomas Paine's defense? I would, I would have thought that they would have, but they didn't, folks. The Jacobins were the ones that actually turned against their former friend. Why, did, why would they have done the unthinkable, folks? They did the unthinkable because it turned out that they, we might think of in today's time as, you know, doing your homework or a.k.a. dirty work. Well, the Jacobins found out that Thomas Paine, years past, not too terribly long ago, had actually supported Louis the Sixteenth and his family in their um, in their um, vision for wanting to um, join America in the fight um, against Britain in the Revolutionary War. Louis the Sixteenth was the one that gave the green light to send. Um, ships over uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean 
The first of three ships came to Portsmouth, New Hampshire in the summer of 1777, as we learned from a previous uh, podcast. And they brought um, a whole stash of armaments, um, 12,000 muskets it was, um, thousands of pounds of powder, um, gunpowder that was, um, 50-some brass cannons. All of this, these muskets and um, powder were... Uh, tents. Uh, think about it. you know the, the soldiers need to lodge. You know we don't have a, we don't have a modern day fort. I mean we do have forts, but we don't have them like the equivalent of of uh, American military forts like we know them today. But Louis the Sixteenth firmly believed that um, America was entitled to not just fight a war against England, but France themselves wanted. Um, wanted to get back at England for how um, for for being snubbed from that seven years war not just being snubbed by losing to England but because of um, the consequences that followed most notably with that uh, proclamation treaty of uh, 1763 which pretty much prohibited westward expansion west of the Appalachians and forced France to give up its uh, territory in the Ohio Valley and along the uh, St. Lawrence uh, River uh, Valley in upstate New York, and um, in areas around um, Lake Erie in Michigan as well. So the Jacobins just simply do not like the fact that Louis XVI and Thomas Paine had um, relations, not just personal relations, but political relations. The fact that uh, Louis XVI went as far as providing... um, a vast array of armaments to provide um, to ensure that the Continental Army would be able to uh, put up a long-term uh, fight with uh, Britain. But the problem I see here, and Harlow Giles Unger pointed it out, is that you know when times change, not every not everyone shares the same views anymore. This could be a generational gap. One generation has one set of views, and then another generation comes along after and changes and makes changes. Some of those changes could be good, others not so. And we have seen that plenty of times. But the Jacobin leaders, by the early 1790s, they, they no longer valued the past. They, in other words, they no longer valued the past sacrifices made between France and America from the Revolutionary War era generation. France, under Jacobin control, or I should say Jacobin leadership, simply wanted nothing to do with past achievements between France and America from the past, which meant severing all existing ties involving Thomas Paine. What, what do you think Thomas Paine was trying to do this whole time in France, folks? He was trying to spread the, the concept of democracy, republicanism. Yes, he, he, he empathized with the Jacobins, but even Thomas Paine's beginning to realize that, hey, maybe these people, maybe these people don't want to work out their differences constructively. All they care about is sticking it, sticking it, sticking it, to uh, those whom had um, had been the oppressors for so long. Maybe the Jacobins just don't want to work with the gentry or the nobility. 
Maybe the Jacobins just see them as people who are snooty, people who are stuck up. Well, it is true. Yes, there are people who are rich who might be stuck up. But the way I see it is that not everyone who's rich is snooty. There are plenty of rich people out there who have done good deeds with their money, who have engaged in tremendous acts of philanthropy. But we also have to remind ourselves that there are those in society who are never satisfied with anything. I've said that a lot already, but even Thomas Hutchinson, for those of you who were with me when we talked about American uh, Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, Thomas Hutchinson said, it is never so easy as to persuade people that they are being badly governed. Could the same be said in France? To some extent, yes. However, um, when you have a sector of society who has been badly governed for a long, long time, they don't see any other way out. All they know is that they have been badly governed. But is it fair to say that they were easily persuaded that they were badly governed? In this case, not. In this case, no, because for America, uh, for example, in the post-revolution, before the American Revolutionary War broke out, America, her people, had it had it uh, pretty good. However, um, the conflict, for those of you who were with me, was more than just taxation without representation. The conflict itself had dated uh, at least a good 40 years before the infamous Boston Tea Party took place, but that Tea Party incident w with the dumping of the 342 chests of tea into the Boston um, into Boston Bay was the final straw that broke the camel's back for that conflict. But it is fair to say that in the case with Louis XVI, that there had probably been there had probably been other injustices imposed upon um, people who now identify themselves as Jacobins prior to Louis XVI's arrival. It's the problem, though, is that this monarchy was so out of control that that only. Um, that the mass uh, populations of French society were never going to be able to um, not just so much be satisfied, they were never going to be able to um, know what, what prosperity meant. They never knew, they never knew what was going to be uh, different. And for Thomas Paine, while still in France late 1792, he was found guilty in England for his works that challenged the status quo, uh, being the monarchy rule, which sought representation in France only to be denied, but yet France found it in their hearts to punish him by going as far as placing him under death row. What a horrible way to, um, to betray someone who went above and beyond to, to, make, um, to try to make a difference, and yet all of that's been... Um, all of that's been um, deprived. Well, we've covered a lot of ground as always, and um, I look forward to being back on the air with you all again next time. And again, I do apologize if uh, there was a glitch from the previous uh, podcast segment, but um, I'm glad that I was able to uh, finish it off in this, um, in this uh, 
current one. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about um, Thomas Paine's struggle and whether or not he's going to even um, avoid being executed. Uh, thank you for now, as always. Uh, thank, well, thank you for again, as always, for listening. And I look forward to being back on the air again with all of you uh, here soon. Take care and have a great evening.